just like we're going to be testing how do we cost effectively register voters, we're going to be testing how do we de-radicalize people? How do we get these lies out of their head? We need to confront the lies directly. We need to confront the liars, those people that are enriching themselves or gaining political power by lying. We need to deplatform them. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Yoni Landau, is founder of Movement Labs, an organization that combines data, technology, and experimental methods with volunteers to build power for progressives. They were formerly called Resistance Labs. Yoni and I first spoke in 2017, and they've grown dramatically in the years since. They started Contest Every Race to recruit Democratic candidates down ballot, and they're using volunteer-driven texting on many projects. We had a good conversation about what he and his team have been up to of late and what their plans are going forward. So after a quick word with our sponsor, my post-2020 election interview with Yoni Landau at Movement Labs. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. You've been on the show before. Would you mind just giving me a quick introduction just to remind people who you are? Sure. I'm Yoni Lando. I'm the founder of Movement Labs. Wait, that's not who you were before. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> what is Movement Labs? Yeah, so one reason I'm coming on your show, Daniel, is <laughs> because we do have a new name. It's a new moment. I am now the, the founder of Movement Labs, not Resistance Labs. We're moving beyond resistance. We are the governing party of the country. Uh, we have all three houses. It's about time to move forward, and it's time to build a movement, a people's movement. And so we are changing our name to reflect that. And has anyone else had that name before? Nope. Movement Labs is a, I mean, there are, a, you know, there are gyms. I think there are gyms in D.C. Uh, that you could go to. <laughs> but, but otherwise, no. Uh, no, this is our name. So what, what is Movement Labs? Movement Labs is a consulting firm and an incubator. We specialize in using data, technology, and a massive army of volunteers to build power for poor, marginalized folks across the country. Poor, marginalized folks? Why are you focused on them? Yeah. So, you know, I think the progressives, like my team actually is, is more <laughs> pushing me to, to use the word progressive to describe our mission. I'm actually interested in more of a class analysis. I think we've lost a little of our focus on the, you know, on the downtrodden as, as the left, as progressives. And uh, so certainly we're going to be doing work on climate, et cetera, progressive issues at large. But I think our focus as a movement does need to be on lifting up the poor and the working class and marginalized communities. 
And how do we do that with data, tech, and a volunteer army? There's kind of two ways I, I could approach answering that question. One is there's like just the practical, what does, what does Movement Labs do? So far, we've focused mainly on SMS. So we've used mass texting programs as a consulting firm, really. You know, we run texting programs for Black Voters Matter, Black Lives Matter, Poder Latinx, a wide variety of groups across the country, as well as candidates working with the DCCC. We're essentially a vendor, like Hustle would be, but we also do the work. So we're more of a full-service mass text consulting firm. Um, we take any revenue that's left over, and instead of kind of like giving it to the consultant owners, we incubate new programs. So we invest the money in gaps that we think exist in the progressive ecosystem to build power for folks. Those programs often use SMS, but they're also not they're using organizing techniques. For instance, we'll set up an in-person meeting in every single county in a state with the Democratic County Party Chair, and then we'll text folks letting them know about opportunities to run for otherwise uncontested races. That program's called Contest Every Race. We've worked with 16 states. We've recruited 2,000 candidates against otherwise uncontested Republicans. And so in general, we're looking for gaps in the ecosystem where our volunteers and our data and technology can, can fill a role. That seems like a initial but pretty narrow use of data and technology. Do you aspire to do more, to create more tech, to broaden the use of data? Yeah, Movement Labs, I think it's a pretty broad, I mean, we have a pretty broad scope of the kinds of things we're working on. So the first three years of Resistance Labs, we were focused really on using text. And I should say, we're not exactly technologists. Like, we're not necessarily the people who are building the software. And actually, I think for the most part, my perspective is that tech is more of a commodity for folks in the political arena. It should be a commodity. We're such a small market that it's not necessarily the case that we're going to be producing the most sophisticated tech or that we need to be investing in building all new tech necessarily. But in general, we're using technology that exists almost always. You know, we're maybe connecting some data sets or whatnot. We're looking for new approaches to solve problems. So we, we use a, a movement innovation framework, which is essentially just like, how can we approach this problem in a new way? Or what's a problem that like people aren't looking at, people are not spending money to solve? So if we took Contest Every Race as an example, people are not really looking far down ballot, school boards, town councils. We saw that was a gap. We thought about what's the cheapest way to test uh, you know, an innovative new way of trying to solve this problem of Democrats not investing in school board and town council races. You know, we looked at text. That's an asset we have. We looked at county party chairs, looked at local union leaders, and we kind of tested until we found something that works. We run randomized control trials. So we, we measure things rigorously. We try to scale kind of in a collaborative fashion, working with whoever's doing the work. That's the kind of the movement innovation framework. I don't know if I answered your question, though, Nathaniel. Well, I like how you labeled it the movement innovation framework that sounds like you uh have a have a real process we have, um, we, have a pro we actually do we have a slide deck we have a slide deck and a process yeah a slide deck and a process yeah it's in both they're very helpful they're mutually reinforcing what other gaps are in the process right now of being looked at for innovation that's the right, that's the right question so yeah what do we want to do for 2021 i think and like, what does the movement need for 2021 is kind of the, 
I think it's on all of our minds. It's certainly as an organization with like such a broad scope, it's like very fundamental to answer that question. The way I've split our plan so far, and frankly, I think part of my process in finalizing our plan is coming onto this podcast and talking to you. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, is the things we need to do are one, deliver, like promises made, promises kept style, like deliver policy wins. Uh, we need to win in 2022 and we need to win all down ballot. We need to like continue sweeping, you know, Trumpism out of office. We need to defeat the big lie. And so those three things are like really big, hard problems. And within them, there's a few ways that we're going to, I think Movement Labs is going to hopefully play a unique role, contributing role. So I'll start with the first, um, like deliver on a policy agenda. I think it's really important for the movement at large in 2021 that like Biden and the Democrats have a clear, ideally like, you know, time sequenced policy agenda. Like first we're going to deal with COVID, then we're going to deal with X, Y, Z. That'd be very helpful. I don't know if that's going to happen, but our role in trying to deliver policy wins is going to be testing uh, communication around polls and advocacy. Um, we're going to test whether we can use polls like Change and Avalanche have done to move people. So if we let them know 70% of people in your county support this or that, like is that a persuasive message that's actually going to move their opinion? And can we drive? And can we also drive them to take action? So that's like an example, like one little. Can I ask you about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, sure. Dig in. First of all, I like the three things that you're interested in, and I think they are broadly important to the country, not exhaustive for sure. I think it makes sense to be testing communications. These might be of interest to movement labs, but they're also of interest to President Biden and to numerous appointees and party people and, and other folks that are doing communication. How are you connecting what you might be interested in doing to help his agenda to the people who are, you know, really trying to do it? Great question. So there's three ways that we're kind of taking the knowledge that we're creating and putting it into the world. One is we will, you know, be drafting regular white papers, kind of Analyst Institute style, often maybe in collaboration with Analyst Institute, putting them out into the world. Here's what we think is a best practice. Everyone should do this, text in this way, use this content, whatever, whatever. We also are a consulting firm. So Folks will hire us to run X program on advocacy. We'll suggest, here's what we think is the best way to do this. And then third, where we think there's a gap, you know, let's say, you know, we think this is a really effective way to mobilize folks for climate, to pass particular bills at the state level, for instance, we will actually create a new entity and fundraise to run that program if we think no one's going to pay us to do it and no one else is going to do it. Uh, sounds interesting and enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot of flexibility. It's a, it's a kind of unique organization because we are a consulting firm. You know, we have a sole owner, me. There's a lot of flexibility in kind of where we go, what we invest in, what we do. We're not taking any money out. So we have extra resources occasionally to invest in particular. So there's a sole owner, you. What's the team look like these days? Yeah, we have a team of about 24 full-time staff. Amy Young is our deputy director. She's kind of been in this space for a very long time. A long time ago as the Ohio executive director of the Democratic Party, Catalyst, Lake. Um, you know, she's been around for a while. And then we have a sales team. We have a partnerships team. Uh, we have our program team. So Contest Every Race, it's a large program, has seven full-time staff. Um, and then as new programs come up, we'll bring on 
contractors typically. So I will have someone running this advocacy program. And we're actually hiring folks that are listening. We are probably still hiring when you listen to this for a head of knowledge to run these experiments and for a head of data and technology. Head of knowledge sounds like an attractive title. Just a research director, but (laughs) you can can hear that I like like the fancy words. Yeah. So that was the first point was a deliver policy. People say good policy makes good politics. And so how well Biden and people in the state houses do in tackling our big problems are going to have a lot of bearing on point two win in 2022, right? I think that's, of course, correct. It's also how they sell it, certainly, but it's not going to hurt to you know, get 100 million vaccines rolled out in the first 100 days. It's going to going to be really crucial. Would you suggest selling it with a stunt like, let's say it's midterm, <laughs> you could claim that there's an invasion coming <laughs> across the border and only you can defeat it. We have a data point that that doesn't work. May have saved a lot of sentences for, I don't know, it's very hard to disentangle. There was an allergy, it felt like, in the Obama administration to selling their policy wins, to doing the work of politics. I'm wondering what the Biden administration will look like. They have so many challenges. They need to stay in power to solve them. So what are your thoughts about 2022? I am already worried. It's such a unique world we live in. Like It's always when, a unique world. Yes. Wait, but when you have a coup attempt, what does that do to the midterm prospects of the coups? Obviously, everyone's worried. Midterm elections, we could lose the House. Are we going to keep the Senate? You know, the redistricting. Frankly, I'm not much of a prognosticator. I think you just have to like do the work. You could argue that there's an awful lot of pissed off people that might vote really hard in the midterm because they didn't get their way just now. I mean, there is that that pattern of midterm loss. That's definitely possible. I think that makes it much more important to deliver. Uh, I think Biden is is set up good voice for the moment to to deliver and try to calm. So what's the role for Movement Labs in winning in 2022? Yeah, so Contest Every Race is, I think, a really crucial program. There's really no national infrastructure, even though there's a lot of talk about every zip code, every county um, from the DNC, has been for a long time. There's really no infrastructure in many state parties, unfortunately. They're underinvested in looking at school board, town council, municipal, even county races. And that's really a huge problem for a number of reasons. One is that governance policy really happens at that level. Those are really important places for, you know, educational decisions, for investment infrastructure, for minimum wage. It's a huge place, obviously, where we build our bench. And it's a huge place where we build the party, build favorability and turn folks out. And, you know, with 500,000 races, the state legislative races are still like, you know, it's 1% of elected offices. So the politics is really happening at this kind of very submerged, invisible level. We need to be competing at that level, even though it's not sexy, even though it's very hard to raise money. We need to be on the ground. We need to be encouraging a people's movement. We need to be like getting county parties the resources they need to run for those offices. Contestory race is going to be growing. We hope to work in 25 states. We worked in, I think, nine this past year. We hope to work in 25 states this, this current year. There's 60,000 races that are in those 25 states. I think you earlier said you worked in 16 states. 
We've worked in 16 states since we launched, which was the year before this year. Oh, I got it. Yeah, okay. So we, we, we want to grow about, you know, threefold um, from this year. Yoni, what was your take on 2020 down ballot? It seemed like a disappointing year given a big national popular vote margin for the Democratic presidential candidate. Yeah. I'm such a bad pundit, Nathaniel, I have to say. Well, it's not about punditry. It's, it's about looking back and and trying to see what happened. Punditry, I think, is more looking forward and saying things that you have no idea whether they'll be true or not. Much easier. Yeah, I think I don't think we have the voter file data to really do a good assessment. Were you surprised? Hmm, was I surprised? I, you know, after so many surprises, again, like I'm not much of a prognosticator. So I, I was kind of like, I guess that we have such a large popular vote margin, sure, but... It's also like that margins mainly in California and New York. So there was really high turnout on both sides. And we haven't really been, I don't think, investing for a long time in more rural areas. And state legislatures are gerrymandered. People were disappointed, but we didn't lose a bunch of state legislative houses. Like we just didn't win what we wanted to win, what the polls said we were going to win. And we lost ground in the House. It's hard to get into the head of the people who voted so enthusiastically for Republicans, honestly. Uh, the last piece I'll say before we kind of move on to the, the, the lies and the liars and the, the marks that people are being lied to. It's really important that we are working now for 2022's up-ballot races. And uh, so the work we'll be doing there is testing voter registration, uh, vote-by-mail work like right now. And then we'll also be running a bunch of persuasion and turnout tests as we get closer to like New Jersey, Virginia elections. So we'll be, we'll be excited to share what we, what we learn about how to cost effectively register. Will you be involved in primaries? Uh, we're typically not much involved in primaries, but you know, we, we've had a few kind of dem on dem races. We helped elect mayor London breed in San Francisco, but it's not really our focus. Sometimes we get hired to work in primaries, but it's not really our focus. So tell me about point three, which you've alluded to, defeating the big lie. <laughs> and a big lie, I would assume, is Trump won. There was enormous amounts of fraud. Yes, yeah. that's the big lie, of course. And I'm using his words consciously. He does that a lot. You know, he, he stole fake news from us. He still uses the word, you know, the big lie. He stole rigged from us, too. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. We face such a hard decade if we can't defeat this lie. It feels like the Irish troubles, you know, it feels like it feels like kind of an ugly period, prolonged ugly period, unless we can kind of like get this lie out of people's head. Because if you really believe that there was a massive conspiracy, you know, and that the government's totally illegitimate, you will really take some quite radical action. You should. Right. It's a really crazy thing. So you should probably take some action. So the first thing we need to do is I think we haven't been aggressive enough about confronting the lie itself. You know, there were 60 court cases. I wonder how many people on his side know they lost 60 court cases. Many of them are impervious to correction by information. And I think that's the consensus. The general consensus is, you know, you don't try to correct, you don't try to inform uh, you just kind of you ignore or you relate. I think there's a lot of truth to that, but I do think we should be aggressive 
about trying to confront it with fact where possible. So, and I think there's ways to test that. So we'll be interested in using uh, surveys kind of and randomized control trials to see. I suspect that some people can will change and some people won't. And we should be figuring out what might work. Yeah, I yeah, agree. For different, for different groups. So, so in figuring out what might work, I think, you know, just like we're going to be testing, you know, how do we cost effectively register voters? We're going to be testing how do we de-radicalize people? How do we get these lies out of their head? Whether that's with, you know, YouTube videos or facts or, or what. Uh, we need to confront the lies directly. We need to confront the liars, those people that are enriching themselves or gaining political power by lying. We need to deplatform them. We have been doing some work on that behind the scenes, supporting kind of some of the, the deplatforming. Explain that. What have you been doing? This is a little bit of an underground program that I'm, I didn't think through carefully how much I would describe on this program. In general, the work to be done is getting tech companies to uphold their terms of service. So we had some really big wins, you know, that certainly I'm not taking credit for, um, where tech companies finally are upholding their, their terms of service. As we push the Nazis, as it were, kind of into the darker corners of the internet, the companies are going to be less public that need to uphold their terms of service, but they still have terms of service that, you know, protect folks from hate speech. What about people who are using encrypted text messaging? I, I assume that those companies can't even see what the... Great, great. So let's, let's, let's think about this a little bit. Twitter and Facebook have a massive reach. Fox News have a massive reach. If we get hate speech off of those, they go on to Telegram and MeWe and Gab and Parler. Much smaller reach a little bit more radicalized space, we could actually deplatform those folks. So now we've cut it down another third. If you're moving people into encrypted text, the reach is just, it's tiny. Having, you know, a 10th or a 20th of the reach is a huge, huge win because it makes it much harder to organize, makes it much harder to build community. These are really communities of identity and connection for folks. But it makes it much harder to figure out what they're doing. Yeah, but I think it's much less important to figure out what they're doing if it's a tiny, tiny fraction. There's always going to be folks on encrypted apps. Our goal is to make sure that those people who are spreading hate are not able to reach new bodies and, and, and radicalize new folks. That's the goal of deplatforming. What are you up to in that regard? So in general, we are supporting folks that are helping to make sure that tech companies are deplatforming. I'll just describe it kind of broadly. You go to the, the first instance, you know, you try to get the individual to get kicked out of the group, you get the group kicked out of the platform, you get the platform shut down by Amazon, Stripe, etc. You kind of work up the chain. That's the, that's the theory of change. Um, we did have some big successes. We got the Proud Boys kicked off of Give, Send, Go, a Christian fundraising site. Uh, Nick Fuentes got kicked off of DLive via some of our organizing. Um, we are working with a, an excellent team of folks because my wife is not excited to have me associated with Nazi hunters, um, this is going to be a little bit more of an underground program for us. Do you worry at all that the deplatforming of people on the right could be precedent for deplatforming people on the left? Hate speech is hate speech. I'm not that worried about people on the left getting deplatformed for hate speech. Everybody has their own definition. A lot of screaming going on in the impeachment debate. I don't think it's such a big deal if like individuals are getting moderated for saying like 
Trump needs to be hung or something like that. If, if people have violent speech, like I'm okay with them getting moderated even on our side. I think that's fine. So you think you can play a significant role in defeating the big lie? <laughs> I don't know about a significant role. We'll, I think we'll play some role. I think that the hardest part of defeating the big lie is, as you were getting to, like, what about the people in encrypted chats? And in general, what about the people who are already radicalized, where, you know, trying to just confront the lie itself is not going to work? The marks, as I, as I call them, the people that have been lied to. That is really hard, long-term work that is really more movement building, organizing, relational work. So we are very interested in that as well. We haven't quite figured out exactly what interventions we're going to be trying to support, but neighbor to neighbor, precinct level, county party presence from the Democratic Party, trying to humanize the other side and connect with folks in rural America, we think is a really fundamental part of de-radicalizing. And we think that it's you know, should be done in a measurable and scalable way. I mean, it feels like a lot of the reason that people get into these radical groups and adopt this various conspiracism and conspiracy theories is they need somewhere to go to belong and they need a peer group and they need common purpose and they're missing that. I'm wondering if there isn't some way that we find another more positive a thing that's sticky enough to attract people and use their talents more productively. I absolutely think that's right on. I think that, you know, the Democratic Party might not be the right brand for a lot of folks. Working Families Party, Center for Popular Democracy, People's Action, Working America. There are a lot of groups that are more anti-establishment that I think could play a very, very important role of helping people build community around, around values that are productive and not destructive. How is uh, Movement Labs positioned as a business? I mean, you indicated some quirky things about using your profits internally to do projects. Is it different than a regular for-profit business? And how is it doing in the market? I mean, obviously, any business has to bring in more than it spends to continue to do good work. Any organization must. So I guess we're a social enterprise. We are incorporated as an LLC. Uh, you know, we have a 501c3 and 501c4 entities that we work very closely with to run those programs. Uh, and as I mentioned before, we don't, there's no money that comes out of the organization, the LLC. There's just money, you know, that gets kind of reinvested in C3 or C4 political programs um, if there's money left over. How are we doing? I mean, there was a lot of money spent in 2020. So compared to how we did in 2017 and 2018, it's a much larger organization. You know, we started with two staff as Rapid Resist in 2017. Um, and now we have, you know, 20 some staff. Will you be able to keep them all employed in a off year? Yeah. So that was one of the strategic reasons we chose this kind of model of social enterprise is that it doesn't really make sense to hire a bunch of campaign staffers, you know, get them very, very high skilled, get a high performing team and then be like, bye bye. Like, good luck on the job market. It makes much more sense to say, you know, what are off cycle projects that their skills could be useful for um, and to have enough money left over to cover their salaries on the off cycle. That's the commitment we have to our, our staff. 
So you've saved up some in order to be able to do this? I think that's in general true probably for every every business that's that's not like a subscription business in politics is that they, they save up after the... Well, a lot of them let people go in political consulting. Yes. So yeah, so that's a couple of things that are unique about us, but I would say, I think the thing that feels most unique about us is that we're both like for hire and we are also searching for opportunities to do work where it may be the case that no one's going to pay us to do that work. You know, whether that's like a wildcat strike of poultry workers that need support where, you know, we're going to just run pro bono texts into their community, helping them fundraise and build awareness, you know, very aggressively looking for, for those kind of no budget organizers doing the most important work in the country to support them, or whether that's a much more ambitious project of, you know, how do we, how do we do neighbor to neighbor organizing in very rural pro Trump places in a way that de-radicalizes people measurably? Um, we're going to invest our resources in testing those ideas. You mentioned a, a number of groups that you worked with. I think Black Voters Matter. Are people getting relaxed? I mean, there was such a impetus after 2017 to the resistance movement that you are part of. I worry, I don't really know, whether we have the same sense of urgency about continuing the fight now that we won a presidential election and narrowly got back the Senate. I think the concerns about the country and our democracy remain red. As, as big as ever. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, was, is your sense from looking at your partners and what they're able to do and what they're talking to you about and what you're up to that we are suitably moving forward? I think that we're in a much better place than we were in 2015 or, you know, post Obama, certainly the consensus fundraising has moved to the left. It's moved to people of color led grassroots organizing groups marginally. I think those groups are much better staffed than they ever have been. America votes tables, et cetera, are just doing, I think, better. They're, they're stronger than they have been. I think that they are certainly taking a well-deserved break, especially, you know, national folks that also work in Georgia like us, like they're finally trying to take a break, even though now, you know, we have coups to worry about. But I think that they're ready to work. I think that folks are still ready to work. If you're asking, like, are the troops of the movement ready to continue working? I think that people people have been politicized. I don't think that this is a, a moment of depoliticization as much as you would have had if Trump had conceded, certainly. It's obvious to folks that we're still in a moment of danger. I do worry about donors. I think that donors, major donors, are going to start pulling pulling money back a little bit and go into their kind of pet projects. There are a lot of Trump, anti-Trump motivated donors that may go away. Yeah, I think that's appropriate. Like the anti-Trump motivated donors, they should be working on democracy reform. They're probably not. Um, they're just scared of Trump in particular. They may go away. I don't think we're going to depoliticize. I think that, you know, things will ease a little bit. Maybe in a couple months, I'll be changing my tune. We'll have Biden administration. You know, maybe maybe Trump and Trumpism won't be in the news. Maybe I'll change my tune. But right now, from where I'm sitting, people are they're gripping the bottom of their seats and they're still wondering what what they can do about it. There's a bit of a gap, and maybe it's just in my understanding, between what you talked about 
wanting to go forward, delivering policy wins, winning in 2022, defeating the big lie, and this other stated goal of helping poor marginalized folks. How do you, how do you connect those together? How are you connecting that? It's, it's really hard, actually, because it's not, it's not always obvious how you connect those. And our work is finding solutions. We think Contested Race does this that overlap, that are going to build power for poor and marginalized folks and achieve these political victories, achieve these, you know, basically you want to think of like, there's a lot of money getting spent to achieve these political goals. We think that that money should be spent in a way that also builds power for the folks that we're purporting to represent. So proving out, for instance, that community organizing, neighbor to neighbor, et cetera, moves turnout more effectively than TV ads is one of our objectives. We think that would do a lot of good towards the long-term health of our democracy, towards the Democratic Party, um, towards our economy. If we can prove out that we should be spending the billions of dollars doing community organizing work instead of on TV and digital ads. And so in general, we're looking, for, we're looking for a way to kind of experimentally prove that we should be doing the work that everyone agrees we should be doing in a way that builds power. When you come into power, especially nationally, the broad coalition that brought you into office, which had concentrated on the Republican conservative enemy, some of it starts to concentrate on getting the policy outcomes, the policy wins, as you talked about it, out of the government that they were searching for. And there's a balance to be found in supporting your team that is there and pushing your team to do what you think is right without undermining them. How do you think about that? I think that that will and it should happen. I think the more that democratic leadership can get aligned on what we're going to do and even when and communicate that to the movement, I think that'll help. Uh, I certainly think that the left you know, movement labs included should and will be pushing for more aggressive policy. It's obvious that we're going to be living with an insurgency of people that don't believe the government is legitimate, that want to take power, and that, you know, terrify Democrats. So I, I think that that actually tempers some of the division that you would otherwise see kind of pouring out that has kind of been waiting between the establishment and the left, between the center and the left. I think that that'll be tempered by just this deep fear of democratic backslide that I think is totally plausible outcome in the next two, five, 10 years. Like we, we know we need to win. It's so clear that we need to win in 2022 or bad things can happen if Kevin McCarthy is speaker and he decides that he's not going to accept the, the results of the 24 election. It's uh, quite something what some of the cans of worms that are open. It feels that way. Yeah. What else should I be asking you that I haven't? <laughs> Would you please sing a tune? <laughs> yeah, I wish I was prepared to, to, to bring my I, You know, I had one podcast where I had a singing guest at the end. It was quite remarkable. Oh, that's nice. What yes. do they sing? A song about data. I leave it to you to track it down. I think I heard, yeah, I know. That's a great song. It's fantastic. Um, I mean, I think that our movement could use some more singing, actually. I think that we could be more spiritually connected and inclined. I think that um, 
Come Sunday is a really uh, great tune. I'll give you a few bars. Lord, dear Lord above, God of mercy, God of love, please look down and see my people through. You did way better than I thought you would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a jazz major in college. I love to uncover these kinds of hidden talents. What else you got? <laughs> I think I'm going to stop while I'm ahead. Thank you so much. Well, it is great to catch up with you. I'm glad you're doing the work you do and you're being ambitious. So that's good. Uh, anything else you want to say? We're going to throw a lot at the wall. That's what a lab should do, right? Exactly. I think a number of the things we throw at the wall will stick. Uh, we're very excited to partner with whoever's listening. Uh, I'm sure that we have a way of, of collaborating with you, whether, uh, whether that's pro bono or not. We're very excited. We've worked with a lot of people. We're, we're thrilled to be a part of this movement. Um, it's a very inspiring place to work. And uh, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. That was Yoni Landau. He's at movementlabs.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.